this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that he is the Son of God. Let us receive this as it is truly the Word of God. You may be seated. This passage this week, John 1, 29 through 34, is a passage that really builds a bridge. On one hand, these verses continue to lift up the theme of the witness of John the Baptist. We saw that last week in verses 19 through 28. But on the other hand, it introduces a lengthy list of titles that are applied to Jesus, titles that go through the rest of this entire book. Let's take a look. Lamb of God, John 1, 29 and 36. Son of God, John 1 and 34. The elect, Rabbi, John 1, 38 and 49. Messiah and Christ, John 1, 41. Son of God, John 1, 49. King of Israel, John 1, 49. Son of Man, John 1, 51. And don't forget what happens in John 1, 45. It speaks of Jesus when it says, The one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Now, many people will make the argument that the fact that Jesus is so fully recognized so early to be the Messiah, that this is evidence that there is really no historical nature for John 1, verses 29 through 51. So why is this, Pastor? Well, after all, when you look at the Synoptic Gospels, you see Peter and the other disciples, they never volunteer, they never make a formal confession about Jesus as a Messiah until they get to Caesarea Philippi, which is well into his ministry. And there's other several factors that I think really mitigate the tension between these two accounts, between how John is projecting Jesus and John wants us to see Jesus and the way the synopsis wants us to see Jesus. Think for a moment. If some of Jesus' first disciples had been followers of John the Baptist, do we not suppose that John the Baptist had encouraged them to abandon 
him as their master at the peak of his influence and to still follow this unknown preacher from Galilee. The best reason for this, I think, is the obvious one. They changed their allegiance from John the Baptist to Jesus Christ because John the Baptist pointed them to Jesus Christ. John said, that is the one that I told you was coming. He who is, he who was, and he who is to come. So for me, these early confessions of who Jesus is in John chapter 1 are not only plausible, but for me they make it perfectly historically necessary. Now, that doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that all of those disciples understood or saw Jesus perfectly. They probably did not have a great Christian grasp on the titles that were applied to Jesus. Doubtlessly, these titles were first uttered more in hope and honor than they were uttered in faith and fact. But yet, in all of the four Gospels, John is the one that most insistently stresses that the disciples did not fully understand Jesus. And I think this leaves room, my friends, for the possible rising understanding that is portrayed in the other three Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. Even there, we see Peter and the others come to this God uh, revealed knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God. But the confession is promptly marred by their massive understanding as well. Let's look at an example. Let's look at how Peter sees Jesus, yet he sees no place for Christ to suffer as a Messiah. And let's see how Jesus rebukes him accordingly. Look at Matthew Chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Is a major misunderstanding that remained in place until the old rugged cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. This was an incredibly important point for John the Evangelist to make clear as he evangelized the Jews of his day that if they were going to put their faith in Jesus, they must take the first steps of faith, which means they must have a detailed understanding of who Jesus was was. These first century Jews, if they were going to become converts, they needed to accept the promised Messiah that had come to be crucified, to be cursed, 
to be condemned like a common criminal. You know, we learn a lot from the old rugged cross. And there's a new philosophy in Christianity, this idea of a new cross, not the cross that Joni and them sung about earlier. This is a different understanding, a different type of evangelizing, a different type of preaching. This new evangelism comes with the same language of the old, but its content is not the same, nor is its emphasis. The ministry of the new cross encourages a whole new and entirely different evangelistic approach. Number one, these new evangelists do not demand, they do not require the rejection of our old life before the new life in Christ Jesus can be received. Secondly, their preaching does not contrast characteristics of our old life, but compare secular similarities. Thirdly, they seek to offer in full public view the same thing that the world offers, but only at a higher religious level. You see, whatever our sin-mad world happens to be clamoring at at the moment, they will show you a clever way that that same thing is offered to you and to me from the gospel, but only the religious product is better. But the, the ministry of New Cross, it never slays the sinner. It never redirects him. The ministry of the New Cross never leads us to, it only leads us to a cleaner and jollier way of living the same way we've always lived so that we can save our self-respect. The ministry of the New Cross slants the direction of the Christian message in order to make it in vogue or to make it tolerable for the public to accept. This kind of ministry is warped. It may be sincere, but it sincerely does not save. It is false. It is false because it is blind. It is blind because it misses completely the whole meaning of the old rugged cross. The old rugged cross is the symbol of death. The old rugged cross stands for an abrupt, violent end of a human being's sinful life. In Roman times, when a man took up his cross and started down that road, he had already said goodbye to his friends because he knew he was not coming back. His life had been redirected, and he was going out to have that life ended. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. The cross, especially the old rugged cross, made no compromise. It modified nothing. It spared no sin. It slew each and every one of us completely and for good. The old rugged cross doesn't try to keep up or keep good turns with its victim. It struck a cruel and hard blow, and then it finished the work until that man or that woman was no more. The race of Adam is under the death sentence. There is no pardon and there is no escape. 
God will not and cannot improve any fruits of sin, however innocent they may appear or how beautiful they are in the eyes of mankind. God salvages the individual by liquidating him or her and raising them again to the newness of life. The evangelism of the new cross draws friendly parallels between the ways of the world and the ways of God, and this is false to the Bible and to all those who hear the Bible. The faith of Christ is not parallel with the world it intersects the world. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life to some higher plane. We leave our old life at the cross. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as some public relation people sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We not and we must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ more acceptable to the press to the world of sports, to those in modern entertainment. We are not diplomats, but we are pastors. And our message cannot compromise. Our message must be an ultimatum, which comes from the same one who has the power over sin and death. It comes from the one that we can say without fear of contradiction. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we too can proclaim this morning, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God whose death, burial, and resurrection made our peace with you, O God. Behold the Lamb of God, who now sits at the right hand of the Father God, interceding for us. O God, we praise you and we give you glory for giving us your Son, Christ Jesus, the one that has the power to pay the price for our sin, the one that propitiates our sin in your heavenly presence, the one whose sacrifice was complete. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Behold, a lamb of God whose death, burial, and resurrection made our peace with you, O God. He is the perfect sin offering. He is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect mentor for our lives. Behold, a lamb of God who sits at the right hand of the Father God, interceding for us. Thank you, O God, for the righteousness given to us through the work of Jesus Christ upon that old rugged cross. Thank you for the remedy to our sin sickness administered on the old rugged cross. And thank you for our rescue and our restoration that comes from the obedience of Jesus Christ and his finished redemption on the old rugged cross. If we had a thousand tongues, We could not praise you enough. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. John 1, 29 says these words. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him 
and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John says the next day here, he's referring to the day after John's response to the Jews that came down from Jerusalem to question his very identity, to question his purpose. And it also really initiates for us a sequence of events that are going to come to an incredible conclusion at the miracle that takes place at the wedding in Canaan. And we see here, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he bore witness both publicly and profoundly. And he says, behold, behold means what? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as Christians, we're all so familiar with this clause here. And it doesn't take much imagination for us to recognize it because we have seen the coming and the death of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't as obvious to those in those times. This fact had made many people deny that John the Baptist ever made such a declaration. They are saying that John, who is a Christian, is now writing backwards as if he understood the full story then that John the Baptist understood that Jesus was the Lamb of God. But I disagree with this assumption. I believe that John the Baptist had an innate understanding of who Jesus was. There was some distinct spiritual connection between them. Remember back in Matthew when John's mother, Elizabeth, meets Mary, and she's overwhelmed that she's in the presence of the fall, or rather the mother of her Lord. And what does John the Baptist, the baby inside of her womb, do? He leaps for joy. So for me, I don't see any problem with that acknowledgement and this acknowledgement. Behold, look the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, in a passage that we will refer to momentarily, it shows that when John had this moment of crisis in his ministry, this moment of crisis in his faith, I want you to look at how he responds, but most importantly, how Jesus responds. Look at Matthew 11, 2 through 19. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 19. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Stop right there. John is probably concerned about his position. He's concerned about his imprisonment. He's concerned about this doesn't match uh, his understanding of the coming one's arrival that was going to bring blessings to all those who repented and judgment to all those who did not repent. Look at verse 4. Now, really look at verse 4. Because this is how Jesus 
answers him. And I want you to see the spiritual connection. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus refers him to Scripture. That's the connection. Because he understood who Jesus was through Jesus. He says, after Jesus had committed these deeds, he understands Jesus because of what Jesus has already done. Look at what it says here in 4. And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. Isaiah 29, 18, 35, and 5. And the lame walk. Isaiah 36 and 6. Lepers are cleansed. Isaiah 53 and 4. The deaf hear. Isaiah 29, 18 through 19. Isaiah 35 and 5. And the dead are raised. Isaiah 26, 18 through 19. And the poor have the good news preached to them. Isaiah 66 and 1. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He gives them scripture and then he gives them a beatitude. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He says, John, you see God's unfolding plan right before your eyes. It's not important that your expectations are not met as long as Scripture's expectations are met. The deeds of Jesus give sufficient proof of who he was and the prophesied time. Look at verse, 11, uh, verse 7, excuse me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Stop. When someone's challenged your authority, when someone's challenged your deity, when someone says that you are not who they thought you were, what is your normal reaction? Your normal reaction is what to tweet out something nasty about them to challenge them. But this is not what Jesus does. He builds them up. Look at seven. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I said to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. No one greater than John the Baptist. No one's mission as unique and privileged to prepare the way for the Messiah, the King, the one that he knows is greater than himself. Those in the kingdom of heaven who have the privilege because they actually entered the kingdom of heaven recognize what a challenge and what a privilege it is to speak the words of Christ. 
after John's crisis of faith, Jesus doesn't discredit him. He builds him up. Why is that? Because Jesus always follows his word. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. If the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we should also live with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Here it is, because he cannot deny himself. Even though John has a crisis of faith, he belongs to Christ, and Christ cannot deny himself. Look at 12. From the days of John the Baptist until the kingdom of heaven, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but the kingdom of God will suffer violence. But no weapon formed against us shall prosper. The religious establishment will always attack us. And I'm sure John was concerned about this, that he had been arrested and didn't know what his faith, uh, fate may be. Look at 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of God came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I believe that John understood Jesus was the Lamb of God because he understood the very weight of Scripture. He understood Jesus as a gentle lamb that's in Jeremiah 11 and 19. He understood Jesus as the lamb that is shown in Genesis 22. He understood Jesus as a gift offering or the guilt offering in Leviticus 14 and number 6. He understood Jesus as that triumphant lamb of revelation. He understood Jesus as the Passover lamb in Isaiah 53 and 7. He understood Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He thought that a terrible judgment would come and Jesus comes to clean up the sin in Israel. And it's like John the Baptist meant who takes away the sin of the world had to deal more with judgment and destruction. But Jesus is that lamb. The lamb that was given the ability, the power over sin and death and the power to forgive sin. He's the Lamb of God. Of, it says in the Scripture that the Spirit remains upon. Look at the John 
130. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What is John talking about? At most, Jesus is six months his junior. But John the Baptist goes off to affirm that Jesus is the one that he had been announcing earlier, that Jesus is the one that outranks him because he was before him, that Jesus is the one because Jesus is pre-existent. This whole understanding of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ is seen throughout the entire Bible. Pre-existence is one that exists in a former state or previous to something else. In the case of Jesus, his pre-existence meant that he, before he became a man and walked on the earth, he was already in existence as the second person of the triune God. The Bible explicitly teaches this doctrine and implies the fact throughout all the Gospels and the epistles. We see his divine identity. We see it through the consequence of his preexistence. Look at John 17 and 5. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. It's all through John. John 3, 13. John 6, 33. John 6, 38. John 8, 23. John 16, 28. And even in John 8, 58 through 59, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. There's no way to miss this. And even when it's challenged, it comes unraveled. Look at Mark 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 2 through 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 2 through 12. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down his bed on which the paralytic laid. And Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But, look at, look at his reason here, but that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before all of them, 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. You see, Jesus wraps himself in flesh. God wraps himself in flesh and comes incarnate as Jesus. The one who is the just God becomes the justifier as well. Look at John 1, 31 through 32. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, we recognize here that out of the four Gospels, John is the only Gospel that does not tell us about the baptism of Jesus. But I think we get a complete, he's referring to this here, but we get a complete picture of the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Stop right there. He wants to fulfill all righteousness. The baptism of Jesus inaugurates his ministry and fulfills God's saving activity prophesied in the Old Testament, which also is, comes to fruition through his death on the cross. In doing so, Jesus endorses the ministry of John the Baptist and links his ministry with himself. Although Jesus needed to give no repentance for his cleansing. We recognize that because of what Paul tells us in what? 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, personal pronoun, refers to God. For our sake, our sake, God made him, second personal pronoun, refers to Jesus. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So the passage goes on to show us, then he consented. Then he refers to John. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. So you've got Jesus in the water, the Son of God. You've got the skies open up and the Holy Spirit is descending upon him. And then look at the third part of the Trinity. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's only three times in the New Testament that God speaks audibly. And every time he speaks audibly, in the New Testament, he speaks to glorify his son and to share with us how well pleased he is with him or he tells us to listen to him. So the Spirit of God anoints Jesus here 
It reminds us of Isaiah 42 and 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Matthew 3.17 tells us this voice from heaven confirms the existing relationship between the Son and the Father and shows that he shares the identity as the Messianic Son of God. Look at Isaiah 42, 2-4. He will not cry out aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice here on the earth, and the coastlines await for his law. Yeah, when John said he did not know him, he did not know him in his fullness. Do we know or do we see Jesus even now when we have the end of the story in his fullness, in, his, in the totality of his deity, in the true understanding of all of his deeds, in the fact that he has never disappointed us and never forsaken us, and he never will. All John knew that he was sent to preach and to baptize with water. All John knew that his ministry was about and ordained by God to prepare the one that was coming so that he might reveal him to Israel. But now John the Baptist is provided the testimony that truly identifies the coming one. He says here, I have seen the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. He had been told by God himself that the one that you see the Spirit come down and remain on, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The early church preached that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, Acts 10, 38. When we read our Bibles and we recognize that we're reading the Old Testament, it speaks of the very fulfillment of Jesus as the promises of God to pour out his Spirit on the coming Davidic king, Isaiah 11 and 1 on the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42 and 1. And then we see in Isaiah 61 and 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord, this is Jesus, speaking about Jesus, and Jesus talks about this in Matthew when he's in a synagogue, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. The spirit not only descended upon Jesus. Because we see all in the Old Testament, God sends the Holy Spirit to energize people to do great works, but then the Spirit goes back. But what does it say in John 3, 34? God gives the Spirit 
to Jesus without limit. When he talks about giving us the Spirit, it gives us the Spirit for our capacity. But we recognize here that John is using the medium of water, but Christ comes to use the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And simultaneously, he will attest to the fact of who he is. He is the announcement of the promised age that is to come. Lastly, here we see John. I have seen and I bore witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist, after his sighting of the Spirit, descending on Jesus in bodily form and transforming him, he declares, this is the Son of God. He recognizes that he is the one that has been promised. He is the one who was and is and is to come. That he is the supreme God that comes down to take away the sins of the world. You know, this word can be translated as well, supreme God or son of God, as Adonai, the incommunicable name of God, which was a substitute for Jehovah, a name that the Jews refused even to pronounce. In this sense, Christ is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Blessed are all who can acknowledge that without doubt or contradiction. Blessed are you if you have eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus Christ is our Savior that he is able to redeem us from the slave market of sin, of Satan, by simply our ability to give our faith to him fully, to not doubt, to not hold back, but to exchange our life for the life that he has changed for us. If you have not come to this decision, you still live in peril. And in times like we are, who could ever refuse such a gracious invitation? Come to Jesus while there's still breath in your lungs. Come to Jesus now. Trust him so that you can proclaim with all of us, behold, 
the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy. We thank you for the gift that keeps on giving in Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him to accomplish what we could never accomplish through our own behavior. You sent your sinless son to become sin that we might become the righteousness of you, O Father. So, Lord, awaken us from our slumber and let us see the bright, shining light that's able to take us out of this darkness and bring us into your marvelous light. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.